Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. When we reflect on this pandemic in the coming months and into the future, we will continue to hear incredible stories of perseverance and, and heroism, really, that took place in American hospitals over the past year. Aside from these many stories of healthcare workers who've devoted the last 12, year, 12 months of their lives to saving the lives of others, another fascinating story is the way hospitals were able to pivot from their usual way of doing business and, and switch their entire organizations to tackle a worldwide pandemic head on. And actually, if you think about it, every one of us this year, all of our families and in our workplaces, we were all affected by dramatic organizational change. Hold on. I'm going to bring in our show's producer, Michael McNutt. Michael, you know what we need? Uh, we need uh, an expert here to talk us through these thoughts, someone who knows the mechanisms of organizational change in hospitals uh, to talk about this. We need someone uh, who's explored organizational responses to, to really cataclysmic events. Well, it's going to be neither you or I, so it's fantastic yeah. <laughs> that we have Dr. Leonard Friedman from the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., joining us today. That is terrific news. Thank you, Michael. Yes, we do have Dr. Leonard Friedman. Uh, Dr. Friedman is a professor at George, w. George Washington University. He's also director of the Master of Health Administration Program at GW, or the MHA at GW, as it's called. Dr. Friedman is also the editor of the Journal of Health Administration Education. And in 2015, Dr. Friedman was inducted into the Studer Group's Firestarter Hall of Fame. Dr. Leonard Friedman is also a fellow Trojan who received his PhD from the University of Southern California. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. My day job is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments, Z-E-L-I-S. Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. I also serve as the Communication Committee Chair for WEDI. That's W-E-D-I. WEDI is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Dr. Friedman, welcome and so happy to have you on our show today. Matthew, thank you for having me. It is an honor and a pleasure to be with you today. Terrific. So I'd like to dive right in, ask you a bit about yourself and your own personal journey. Journey. Uh, I know that we were uh, Trojans at the same time at USC, uh, but tell me how you were drawn into this, uh, this discipline, this issue of organizational change in the health healthcare systems. Right, and this... This is a story that uh, can be told either the long version or the short version. And given that we don't have three days to do the long version, <laughs> the, the the bridge version is some. It really goes having been uh, rejected at forty plus medical schools as an undergrad, and the it, it was almost the sense that I had something to prove. Uh, I had been in the healthcare space since I was 15 years old, having uh, done volunteer work at was uh, then the old Mount Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles, now the uh, Cedar sinai Medical Center. But after, after going through that medical school application process, tried a number of different things. I spent five years uh, in uh, secondary education teaching uh, middle school science and mathematics, uh, 
ran a federally funded health program for a number of years, uh, then moved from that into academic administration. But I knew I wanted to stay in the healthcare space. I didn't know exactly how. And I knew that I could teach after having spent five years teaching a bunch of 12 and 13-year-olds and thinking, okay, I want to do this, but I don't want to have to deal with the discipline issues of middle school. So what better than to uh, complete my PhD at USC where I was working full-time and the School of Public Administration, as it was known then, now it is the Price School of Public Policy, had a degree program where you got to specialize, isn't the right word, you had to qualify in four different uh, areas. And the two that were required of everyone was in organization theory and organization behavior. And then you got to pick two others. And my two were health administration and the applied behavioral sciences. So that combination of, of preparation and experience really led me away from more quantitative sorts of activities and into more qualitative work. So having uh, earned my PhD from USC in 1991, had the opportunity to uh, take a full-time faculty position uh, the following year at Oregon State University, spent 16 years there, and then in July of 2008, made the decision to leave beautiful Corvallis, Oregon, and make my way to Washington, D.C., where I've been ever since at the Milken Institute School of Public Health and the George Washington University. So that's the career in a nutshell. Uh, those who would like to know more, I'm happy to share it, but that would be an, a clear cure for insomnia for most people. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I like the beginning of the story that it, that it kind of comes from defeat, from the defeat of not getting accepted to 50 uh, medical schools comes uh, a successful career. Um, so uh, you've had over three decades now of teaching, uh, but I, I think I can't think of any uh, better uh, laboratory for studying organizational change than what we've been through in the last year. H how has the pandemic um, uh, changed your teaching, or or how has it how has it um, how has it influenced your teaching maybe over the maybe over the last year? Sure. So let me answer that in taking two different directions, Matthew. The first is the actual pedagogy of teaching, where over my entire career, I had gotten really good at teaching face-to-face. -face. Uh, I, I got to be the sage on the stage, stood in front of the classroom, dropped pearls of wisdom at the feet of my students, and if they had any sort of wisdom and insight, they would, would pick them up. Of course, I am, I am kidding because I have so few pearls of wisdom that it's it's not even worth talking about. <laughs> However, I, I got pretty good at it. And the when the, the pandemic hit, we were incredibly fortunate. Now, this is not to mean that the pandemic was a fortunate event, uh, but we had developed an online, primarily an online executive format Master of Health Administration degree uh, 80% of which is taught online. So the courses that I've developed are meant to be taught online. I developed them. I put together a curriculum that would be uh, most appropriate for an online program. And the 
the audience was uh, intended from the very beginning to be full-time working adults who are already in the healthcare space. So when the university made the call in March of last year that we would literally switch uh, within a two-week period from going from fully face-to-face uh, -to, -face to fully online, this was a space that my colleagues and I had a good deal of familiarity with. So we were, we were used to working in that environment. Uh, we had a good deal of experience on how to engage students in a, uh, in a virtual environment. So the transition, at least for my colleagues and me, was not as jarring as it might have been. Uh, students had uh, a probably a little harder time at it, although most of our students are incredibly familiar with with technology. They they use it all the time. But to take a class start to finish in an online format uh, is it it it's you can't just take what you were doing in the classroom and think you're going to move it into online and be successful. There needed to be a number of different techniques and processes that, that were put in place. And so again, I think we were pretty successful at it. So that was part one. The second part was around the adjustment of our curriculum to, to COVID. And so the, the stuff that I teach is in the domain of uh, human resource management and organization behavior and healthcare leadership. I teach the, uh, the capstone course for our residential students, and I teach courses in leadership and ethics, as well as a health system analysis for our executive students. But while a piece of all of those classes had been organization change. And we talk about various theories of change and the behavioral components of change. All of a sudden, instead of talking about it in the abstract, now we're talking about COVID uh, as something that everyone is experiencing. So it created a sense of immediacy for our students. It was no longer a case study that they might read and have to imagine how they would respond. Now it's, they're trying to deal with this in real time. And many of our students were affected because they, we are one of only a handful of, uh, of accredited MHA programs in the country that still requires our students, our residential students to do a year long administrative residency or fellowship. Well, some of those fellowships got upended and the, projects that we ask our students to do in the capstone course that they would do in a face-to-face -face environment now are done online. So our students are put into this, into this cauldron and we had to work very carefully and closely with them to help our students deal with their own reaction to the change that was brought about by COVID and how it affected them uh, both personally as well as thinking about their their own path as uh, as future healthcare leaders, right? And and, and touching on that, um, in a number of articles I read that you wrote, um, you actually you bring that idea of the theoretical, the theoretical uh, of uh, organizations, the theoretical of organizational change, and how uh, maybe lessons from 
those theories and that academic discipline can be brought into, you know, into our own lives. So, so certainly there hasn't been one of us that hasn't been untouched by this, uh, our personal lives, our, our family lives, our, our workspace lives, all of that, all of those have gone through tremendous organizational shifts. Uh, uh, so, so are, are there any lessons that you can give us <laughs> from your, from your, you know, three year courses that you teach, anything that you can give us in terms of nuggets and like, and how we think about organizational change, we can also apply to our own lives. Sure. So one of the, one of the first things that my students will tell you, Matthew, is I, I tell them that organization change when done well is difficult. And when it's done poorly is almost impossible for, in my experience, Managing organization change is the single most difficult activity that any healthcare leader is called on to do for the basic reason that people, as a rule, don't like change very much. Uh, and if, if you and our listeners can think about it, how many times do you just intentionally change up your morning routine? You have a certain way of doing things every morning, you're comfortable with it. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it's just how we prefer to behave. Uh, we have a certain way in which we, we drive into work. So our lives are governed by preferences. And when those preferences get turned upside down as a result of some change activity, uh, and in the case of, of uh, COVID, this represents something that I've written about that we call an environmental jolt. So it, it's almost like, and in, in both for you and I, having spent uh, time in Southern California, you often experience earthquakes. Well, earthquakes represent that type of jolt. You don't know when it's coming, and maybe the jolt is fairly minor, but then sometimes it's really significant. And all you can do is hold on for the ride and hope and just wait for this to end. So in any jolt like the uh, COVID pandemic has, has created, this, this results in a very high level of uncertainty for individuals and for organizations. And most of us haven't planned for that. So the, the routines that we use, the preferences that are at the center of our personalities and the way in which we like to work with the world are all of a sudden turned upside down and topsy-turvy. And we need to find a way to deal with that. And I think what we've discovered over the last year is that this is not easy. Whether it's uh, our, our I have three grandchildren and the two of the three are in an elementary school right now. And the oldest who is seven and in second grade and by any indications is a very bright young boy if I do say so myself. Uh, his mother called me up and said that his teacher said he just doesn't deal well in an online environment. He is much better suited for face-to-face. -face. So that's just one minor example of what all of us are trying to deal with. So it is this type of change that we really can't control. I suppose the one thing we can is that we decide to how we're going to uh, to deal with with the world around us. If we're going to adopt 
certain public health practices, if we're going to make an appointment to get our COVID uh, vaccination. But the, the change that is upon us is something that is totally out of our control. And I think that's what gives people the greatest level of, of discomfort. And you know, there's a lot of change that happens that, that we, we initiate, but a lot of what happens in our organizations is out of our control. And so it's really up to the leadership of our organizations to help people figure out a path through that, through that white water of uncertainty, if that makes any sense. I think it does. And and now I'm thinking of, you know, when I've been part of organizations and they're they're heading towards a change, right? They're being merged with another company or they're they're having layoffs or they're having organizational change. It's off it's planned, right? You've got six right. months ahead of time, and so you bring right. in the change management people and they head it off and they help people oh. with their emotions as well as their right. Um right. exactly what you're talking about here, this was put upon us, not planned. So then what, what do we do with that past? And especially if, you know, certainly the first couple of months of the pandemic, the plan was we'd all be back doing the same thing after a week or two here, right? This is just right. a, a one-off, right? Mm -hmm. What do you do when it's, when it's planning time? How do you plan for a future that doesn't seem to be under your control? Right. And this is part of the, the sense that my, my preference is that while you may not be able to control the, the actual change events, we cannot wish COVID-19 away. Um, but what we can do is, at least in the healthcare space, we can remember why we're in this business and what it is that we are supposed to do. And it really goes back to, to our mission and to the values of our organization, those things should not change whether or not we're in, in a pandemic situation. And so I think for, for not just for leadership, but for persons who at the organization, as long as we keep our eye on that, that North Star, as long as we understand the larger purpose of why we are here, then at least that gives us something to aim towards. We are not just flailing around in the dark. Uh, and at least in the healthcare space, whether our patients are coming in because they are sick with COVID or because they have some other uh, healthcare condition, we have to be there for them. And whether, so COVID just adds that additional level of complexity. But Matthew, as you said, the first couple of months, yeah, we were hoping and wishing it would go away. But when it, it uh, suddenly became clear that COVID was here for the, the longer haul, we had to make adjustments on the fly. And there, was, there were very few guideposts or rule books or policy and procedure manuals that we could turn to. Uh, so it required folks across our, the spectrum of our organizations to get really creative and sometimes to do things that they don't ordinarily do, which is to uh, get outside their boxes, collaborate with people both within healthcare but, uh, but outside. 
as a way of at least getting through the initial jolt. And now that we've done that, now it's become a little, the path has become a little bit clearer. I was very heartened to hear that Johnson & Johnson and Merck were going to be collaborating to produce vaccine. Under other circumstances, those two uh, pharma giants would be uh, fighting like uh, like little kids on the playground. Uh, but, and I, I suppose uh, we can think of other metaphors to use but in in this situation, the the conditions that are being imposed upon us require pers- groups or persons who were once rivals to, to all of a sudden to become collaborators. And I think that's incredibly healthy and is something that we should take forward. Very good, very good. and and I, I love that idea of, you know, when when the plan isn't very clear and the jolt's been put on you, keep your values and your mission in mind, uh, and that works for both organizational and family and personal level as well. Keep those values and missions uh, in in mind. Keep your eye on the ball and uh, head that direction. Terrific. Dr. Friedman, uh, when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Friedman, professor at George Washington University and director at the Master of Health Administration program. When we come back, I do want to talk to uh, the professor about what we might have done well in terms of organization and organizational change over the last year and what maybe we can do better as a health system uh, looking towards the future. For now, let's take a quick break and hear from our producer again, Michael McNutt. The preeminent national membership association for health IT guidance and collaboration, Weedy has earned the title of being an instrumental force in engaging public and private partnerships, facilitating discussions, and providing a collaborative voice as a national healthcare advisor to provide meaningful changes for the American healthcare system. Become a member and provide national leadership that enhances the exchange of clinical and administrative healthcare information. Join one of our various work groups where Weedy members collect input, exchange ideas, and make recommendations that inspire impactful and far-reaching change in our industry. Learn more about how you can make a difference at Weedy.org. We're back, and we're talking with Dr. Leonard Freeman, professor at George Washington University and director of the Master of Health Administration program on another episode of The Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast. Uh, so, uh, Leonard, uh, talking about uh, the pandemic and organizational change, uh, looking back, and, and you brought up the Merck and Johnson and Johnson cooperation idea, and, and certainly uh, 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 Operation Hyperspeed. Uh, that was that was unbelievable uh, coordination between government regulators and 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 the commercial sector. What what did we do well uh, organizationally? Uh, over the last 12 months? And maybe what could we improve on for the next time we get a jolt from the outside? Sure. So I think, and given the the audience to this podcast, I think the, what really people did well was make this leap into telemedicine or telehealth. And I know many organizations, many health sector organizations have had telehealth <clears throat> excuse me, on their radar. They they know it's out there. They Some of them were fairly familiar with its capabilities. A uh, Veterans Administration Health System, for example, uh, had uh, a good deal of experience in this space. But 
I know of a particular large uh, physician practice that had a five-year plan for telehealth in their uh, in this this system and take care of their patients. Well, that five-year plan suddenly got compressed to five weeks, and so the the pandemic has really accelerated the the process of change. Uh, John Cotter wrote the uh, that very famous. A series of steps that organization change uh, require. And the first step is the creation of a burning platform. You need to create a reason for people to change. And in the case of, of uh, telehealth, the people were maybe going to come, come around to it in a period of time, but the pandemic was the accelerator. That was the flame that got put underneath everyone to suddenly get them moving because all of a sudden uh, the people are uncomfortable coming in and meeting with their physicians. I suspect some of the physicians or their staff were uncomfortable having lots of patients in the door. And so what we discovered was that you could be fairly effective in telehealth visits, when uh, when prior to, to the uh, COVID pandemic, this was the second or maybe even the third choice. So when you ask what went well, I think that's probably, for me, the, the, the best example of how we adjusted quickly and how uh, health sector organizations that knew about telehealth suddenly discovered that yeah this is this is the real thing now the, the question of course is well are we going to go back to some what what will be the level of telehealth usage once we're over the uh, over the pandemic and people have gotten vaccinated and there's a level of herd immunity i think it's probably going to uh, to stick around maybe not in its uh, in the current volume, but I think health sector organizations have realized the the potential that uh, the telehealth can bring. So I'm pretty optimistic about where we are, at least with with telehealth and telemedicine. So let me uh, let me. Um stop you there with the telemedicine. And I'm wondering if you could apply kind of the same uh, step one and step two that you applied to teaching, right? And the first thing you said about teaching is it changed the pedagogy, right? It changed, you know, how your relationship was with students. You were suddenly not in the classroom. You were, uh, there was lack of body language because now you were over virtual. Um, thinking about uh, pedagogy, and there must be a better term for it in terms of the healthcare context, uh, when you're meeting with a doctor uh, over telemedicine, um, does something have to change there as well uh, in terms of uh, that relationship? Yeah, I think so. And so I let me just give you a disclaimer. Uh, I am not employed in the School of Medicine. I am in a School of Public Health at the George Washington University. And <laughs> so the I cannot speak with any authority at all with respect to how physicians or other clinicians are trained. But I would, if, if I could have the ear 
of deans of schools of medicine or schools of, uh, of nursing or other clinical preparation programs, I would suggest that they may want to think about adjusting their curriculum to include telemedicine and telehealth as part of the way in which uh, clinical staff are being uh, prepared to deliver care. Because the, uh, the old way of doing business, I think, is if it's not already past us, that the train has left the station. Mm-hmm. And we're in a, a new, pro- new method, new process by which we can deliver care in, in this virtual environment. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that all care should be delivered that way. But when it's appropriate to do so, and particularly for people who are in rural communities and people who may not necessarily have access to these very large and sophisticated health systems, that telehealth and telemedicine is probably going to be a really good alternative. Right, right. Definitely opens up access. And and like you said, it, the training wouldn't have to be medical training. The training is more about how to use the tools to to get to the same outcomes uh, right. uh, with the telemedicine regime. So then the second question, uh, looking forward, um, what might we need to change or what might we need to prep for in terms of our healthcare system or hospitals uh, to be prepared for the next jolt, the next unexpected? Right. And it was funny, I had a dear friend and colleague who was the guest speaker in my class last night. And one of the great folk, one of the great quotes that he used towards the end of his presentation was that a failure to plan is planning to fail. Mm. And what this really suggests to me is that we don't really know what the next jolt is going to be. And it, it could be anything. But we need to be thinking about how we are going to respond. We need to think about how do we pre-plan having enough supplies. Uh, Many healthcare organizations, because of certain financial pressures, uh, kept little or no inventory of supplies. Uh, It was basically a a just-in-time business model that said, if you just tell us what you need right now and you'll get it. But we, having an inventory is very expensive. And I, I don't doubt that for a second. But all of a sudden, in the case of, of COVID, when you needed things like, oh, I don't know, uh, personal protective equipment, uh, including masks and gloves and gowns and various things like that, or you needed ventilators, or even better, if you needed the right kind of personnel. Just having vents and having PPE is is wonderful, but if you don't have the right personnel available to deliver the care, then it's probably it's not that's not going to go well. So the first, so so Matthew, to your your question, and it's perf- perfectly reasonable one, but it's it's around planning and it's thinking about what you're going to do and how you're going to respond, because you may not know the specifics, but you can think about what are the sorts of processes. So maybe there's a, 
You could engage in tabletop exercises. Maybe there are uh, opportunities to collaborate with other healthcare organizations in your uh, local or regional communities. Maybe this is an opportunity to think about the relationship between you and your organization and various government entities. These, all of these conversations need to occur beforehand. If they're, <clears throat> excuse me, if they are taking place after the event has occurred, that's way too late. Right. So, so I would, I would suggest that we really need to be thinking about not just the jolt, but about our, our resilience, our ability as John Cameron Swayze, I'm going to show my age, but John Cameron Swayze and Timex watches, and those above a certain age will remember this commercial, where they strap this, this watch onto something and throw it around a room and bounce, drop it off of a five-story building and all of somebody retrieves the watch and the tagline is it takes a licking and it keeps on ticking. Right. And maybe that's what we need to learn to do. Yeah. But again, it goes back to something we said before the break. We need to keep our eye on the North Star. Remember what our mission is. What are we here to do? And if we can keep that in mind, if we can begin to develop the resilience to survive that next jolt, then that puts us in a far better position than if we just let this happen and figure we're going to make it up as we go along. That will never end well for anybody. Yeah. And as you're saying this, you know what I, what I find interesting, actually, um, and I think about it with my own children, is your students, who you're, you're really training to be the next healthcare leaders in the future, it's almost like part of their education has been this resilience because they've lived through it. They've lived in now in a world where um, you, have to, you have to expect the unexpected, like a worldwide pandemic. Are you finding that your 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 students might be uh, you're giving them pearls of wisdom, but in some cases they're growing up with a a kind of ex wisdom of experience that uh, many of us probably didn't have. Right, and I I think that's a, a valuable uh, artifact of of the pandemic on on our students, whether they are the executive students in the uh, in that program or our residential students, uh, but or undergrad or graduate or wherever, they have gone through this. They have experienced for themselves the just the, the level of uncertainty that comes about when you're in the middle of a change process that you're just along for the ride and you just hope that you're going to end up okay. So I think your, your point is well taken and whether it's a, Children, and I don't know how old your children are. Uh, my grandchildren, who are three, five, and seven, uh, have, I, I, it's hard to say about the three-year-old, but the five-year-old and the seven-year-old, uh, I hope will remember some of these, these things that they've experienced going forward, and certainly our students, and the need to sometimes adjust very quickly, and that Sometimes good enough is good enough. And 
And if they've if they've got that, if they've got that ability ability to to bounce back, then I think that this has been a lesson very well learned and an experience that will pay dividends in the end. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, you touched on uh, healthcare personnel, and and we've heard stories lately, and maybe they're just anecdotal at this point, that uh, many nurses and other uh, healthcare workers uh, not only uh, may not uh, may not be coming back next year. Maybe they're 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 kind of they've had their year of exhaustion here, and they're now leaving in in large numbers. Um, what are you hearing from your students? Are your students? Um, have they been inspired by what hospitals have been able to do? And are they attracted to the industry now? Or, or is there a disillusionment with it? Are you getting any sense of that? I think there is a sense of, of hope and purpose. So one of the, the things that we teach them, and you, you were very kind to mention that, uh, that I'm the recipient of the uh, Firestarter Hall of Fame award in 2015. This so Quint Studer, who is a, a dear friend and a mentor of mine, in his very first book, Hardwiring Excellence, he talks about the healthcare flywheel. And at the center of that flywheel are three attributes, purpose, worthwhile work, and making a difference. And what we try to do in our program is to inculcate our students with this, that this is why they are in healthcare. This is why they have chosen this discipline. It, it is an extraordinary calling to think about becoming a healthcare leader. And this is not to minimize at all the work that clinicians do, physicians, nurses, technologists, you name it. Uh, they do heroic work. But people who are drawn into uh, management and leadership roles understand that unless they have a clinical license behind their name, they will never be able to touch a patient. Uh, if they do, it's called assault and battery. They can do hard time in the gray bar hotel, and we strongly advise against that. But what our students get to do is to create and sustain those systems that allow clinicians to do their very best work. So our students with particularly, well, those who are alums and who've gone out and made a career of this, they understand that the work they do allows clinicians to do their very best work. And so everyone is part of this larger healthcare system. And I think that our students are very optimistic about wanting to make a difference. They feel as though that they they are in a position to affect not only individual patients, but rather the health of whole communities. So this is just a remarkable uh, opportunity for our students to really do something extraordinary. And all of the students that I've talked to, whether they are currently in the program or are fairly recently graduated, they will tell me that yeah, they work like crazy, and but they in this era of COVID, they're being pushed to their absolute limits, and I think this is going to really pay off for them in the end. Very good. That's that's very hope, very hopeful. Uh, I think that gives a hope to everybody that that's 
That's where our healthcare leaders are today. So um, if we look back at, you know, last couple of years in the healthcare industry and, and maybe the last year in particular, uh, a number of uh, tremendous successes, uh, innovation, telemedicine uh, jumped ahead uh, probably five years, but we're also seeing uh, tremendous disparity in access, uh, tremendous disparity in, in health outcomes. Um, uh, a lot of the stuff, uh, a lot of the, uh, I think the pandemic brought up a lot of um, bad things about our, or negative things about our health system as well. Um, what, what kind of health system do you think your students are going to be overseeing uh, four or five years down the road? Where, where do you maybe hope the health system will be uh, in five years under their leadership? Right. So to, to borrow the, the quote, originally I understand it was ascribed uh, to Wayne Gretzky, but I think it was Wayne Gretzky's father. Uh, and it's, the idea is don't skate to where the puck is, but skate to where it's going to be. And I think what we're trying to do, and I can only speak for our program at the George Washington University, but we are trying to prepare our students for a future that is that is, what is going to be rather than what is. So we are about use about creating something that one of our alums, Russ Coyle, described as an intentional future. And Matthew, your point about health disparities and health inequities could not be more true. Uh, there is a tremendous uh, issue that we have to confront. And we are making adjustments in our curriculum to, to talk about these issues and what, did, what do we have to do about them in order to make healthcare uh, more universally available, which is fundamentally a political question, but it's also one at the community level. So we are, I think we are giving our students the, the right framework. They are coming in with the right perspective and our students are very dissatisfied with the status quo. And they want to be, a, to borrow that phrase, they want to be at the point of the spear to make a tangible difference, not just in their organizations, but in their communities. So the, the, the thing is, when I was back in school, we were, we, we never talked about this at all. This was, we, we talked about finance and we talked about issues on technology and all of those really good and important things, but we never talked about the fundamental issues of fairness and equality and making sure that every one of our patients is being treated with dignity and respect. So that is an important attribute that all of our students are getting now. So I think very sincerely that they are going to take that with them. They are probably going to go into organizations that are more aware than they were even five years ago. And so I'm hopeful that over the next five years, we're going to start to see some changes, uh, certainly at the organization level, but there are going to have to be larger, more systematic changes uh, coming from both uh, uh, from local, from state, and from federal government. So it, it requires that everybody 
be pulling on the same end of the rope or rowing in the same direction rather than uh, beating each other over the head with their oars. Right. Very good. I, what I love with your description of your students uh, that you've been talking about for the last few minutes is one, they've got, they sound like they have a tremendous passion for the issues or the, the subject matter that they're studying, uh, healthcare, healthcare systems, healthcare organization. But at the same time, like you said, they're not satisfied with the status quo. That sounds like the ideal student for <laughs> what they're going into. And it sounds like an excellent program you have. Thank you. So thank you, Dr. Friedman, for your time today. And thank you for everything that you and your students do uh, for Weedy in coordination with Weedy. We appreciate that. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. This has been a, a real treat for me. And I appreciate this opportunity to spend a little time with you and your listeners today. Well, me too. This has been a great few minutes. Thank you, Dr. Friedman. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe.